There are two kinds of talk we engage in everyday's life. Talking to others and talking to yourself. You might be one of those that insist, I don't talk to myself. I think it is important that you know who I am and why you should even care about what I have to say. Welcome to Voodoo Podcast. And my name is Q-U-A-M. Let me repeat that one more time. Q-U-A-M is my name. A weekly podcast that explores human psychology, seamlessly explains complex information and a way of communication that understands the context of social, literary, and historical environment in which we live. You are more likely to recognize key themes and stylistic traits as elements of larger trends in the literary world, as well as understand the impact of historical events from a new and unique perspective. It is a resource for me, we, you and I, who seek information beyond the simple biographical details of the 20th century most influential and critical thinker of the world-leading intellectuals which evolves into a broader discussion, encompassing a wide range of topics from science, history, behaviorism, to creativity, freedom, and the struggle for justice in the realm of politics. Thanks for listening and subscribe to my channel. Enjoy the full lecture. In pressureful times like ours, a sense of humor can indeed uh, be a saving grace. And as we watch people with their various problems and troubles, we observe that those who do not have a sense of humor are likely to have a particularly difficult time with this world. We know that life is serious business. But we also know that very few persons can afford to take it with utter seriousness. To do so is to gradually undermine vitality and psychological integration. Today, we are concerned with psychological problems. We realize that persons who lose a certain orientation become psychologically depressed and develop serious mental symptoms. Usually, a person under psychological stress has lost perspective. He has either closed himself to the world or he has accepted a negative attitude toward those around him. One of the most common psychological obsessions is this tendency that we have to create a kind of world the way we decide this world should be and then proceed to be broken-hearted when it is not that way. This is a very common practice. 
we demand of others that they shall fulfill our expectancies or live up to our standards or see things as we do. If they fail to so agree and cooperate, we consider this an affront, a personal injury, a disillusionment, or a cause of discouragement. If we have this preconception about living, we will always have a tense and difficult life. The best thing for us to do in most of these problems is to expect no more from life or from other persons than we can reasonably demonstrate that we can expect. To demand more than reasonable expectancy is to open ourselves to suffering. No one really wants to suffer, but we find it very convenient sometimes to fall into suffer patterns or suffering patterns, particularly those kind of patterns which make us sorry for ourselves. So look around and see what kind of a world you live in. Realize that you are not going to be in it forever, that it existed before you came, got along somehow, that a good part of it is, it, it is existing while you're here without knowing that you exist, and when you're gone, it is still going to exist some way. It may not be as well off, but it'll make it some way. <laughs> Thus, we are not tied to a pattern of consequences so intimate that we must feel that, like Atlas, we carry the world on our shoulders. If we manage to carry our own heads on our shoulders, we're doing very well. And if we are able to live a consistently useful, creative type of life, and maintain a good attitude toward living, we have achieved about as much success as the average person may reasonably expect. This, this situation of making problems desperate, feeling that with our small and comparatively insignificant difficulties, that the whole world is shaking to its foundation. Also this feeling that we cannot be happy and never will be happy unless everybody else changes their conduct. Such thoughts as these are certain to cause us a great deal of unnecessary difficulty. They will take what otherwise might be a rather pleasant way of life and make it unbearable to ourselves and others. In religion, we are particularly problemed with the problem of humor. Religion is a very serious business, and to most persons it should not be taken flippantly, and we quite agree. On the other hand, it is a mistake to permit religious thinking or spiritual inclinations to destroy our rational perspective toward life. We cannot afford to be miserable for religious reasons any more than from any other group of reasons. 
The answer to religion is that it will bring us comfort and consolation. And for an individual to declare that his religion is a source of consolation and remain forever unconsoled is not good either. Religion is supposed to help us to solve problems. It is supposed to help us to have some kind of spiritual help of faith and hope and charity. Well, very few problems will stand up under faith, hope, and charity. But most religious persons are not practicing these attitudes. They're still criticizing and condemning, fearing and worrying, just like everyone else. Out of all this type of realization, we do come to some rather obvious, reasonable, rather scientific conclusion. Of the persons who come to me in trouble, the overwhelming majority lack a good sense of humor. This report is also to be found in the records of practically everyone who carries on contact on a counseling or helping level. The individual has lost the ability to stand to one side and watch himself go by. When he looks around him and sees all kinds of funny people, he forgets that other people are also watching him with the same convictions that he has. If we can manage to keep a certain realization of the foolishness of our own seriousness, we are on the way to a personal victory over problem. Also, we lose this uh, rather gentle uh, control of our own expectancy. Most persons expect too much of others. They expect more insight than is available, they expect more interest than other people will normally have. And they expect other people to be better than reasonable probabilities. In, in substance, they expect other people to be better than they are themselves. We know that we have all kinds of faults and we're sorry in a way, but at the same time we expect other people to endure them. On the other hand, when someone else has the same faults, we resent it bitterly. We, uh, we cannot accept the very conduct that we impose ourselves upon others. Again, due to lack of understanding, lack of taking life gently and pleasantly. A sense of humor is a characteristic with which some persons are naturally endowed. There are some folks that seemingly have a knack for observing the whimsical in life. They are born with this gift, but even these have to cultivate it to some degree, for humor, like everything else, will not mature without cultivation. 
if we allow this humorous streak to merely develop in its own way, it is apt to become satirical or to become involved in some selfish pattern by which we use it to ridicule others or make life uncomfortable for them. Thus, a sense of humor has to be educated. It has to mature because there is really no good humor in this peculiar habit that we have of ridiculing other people. This is not funny. And it is not good, it is not kindly. It merely becomes another way of revenging ourselves upon someone. This kind of vengeance uh, we can variously defend and run and hide behind the statement or the premise that we were trying to be funny. But actually, if our humor takes too biting and personal a form, then it needs reform just as much as any other attitude that we have. Actually, the basis of humor is first the intellectual fact that it shows that we can penetrate into the common foibles of our kind. The real humorist has to have a rather profound knowledge of human nature. And great humor is based upon this recognition of the natural peculiarities of man and how he will respond to them under certain stimuli. The second part of humor is actually the ability to use our basic discovery in an amusing and pleasing manner with the end of creating a relaxation, a relief from tension, and using laughter as a medicine against the stress and strain of our daily relationships. Laughter is a constructive kind of hysteria which gives us a useful release. And if we can laugh naturally at naturally humorous things, we are going to gain in health and understanding. If, however, we can only laugh at something that hurts another or brings some kind of sorrow or injury to another, then our sense of humor is not normal. And we can do a great deal to psychoanalyze ourselves by determining through research what to us is funny. And if that which is humorous to us requires some bitterness, some sarcasm, uh, some condemnation or ridicule of things of value, then our sense of humor is not real or proper. We also must recognize in the problem of humor that there are subjects which cannot be regarded as proper for humor, certainly not in a personal way. Such subjects are those which are sacred to the human being, to his convictions, or are too meaningful for him to permit them uh, to be uh, subjected to any kind of whimsy. 
Uh, to attempt to uh, humorize on such subjects is to offend and really to lock the individual further from the remedial power of good humor. The story of humor belongs with the race since the beginning. Primitive peoples are very fond of humorous situations. One of the oldest forms of humor is pantomime, the humor of the classic clown. Uh, way back in the primitive days where we had a tribal existence and had yet not developed any formal institutions, the clown or the fun maker had already appeared in our savage life. This fun maker was grotesquely attired, marked or painted or adorned, and he made whimsical gestures that were usually exaggerations of some familiar uh, gesture or mannerism of his people. He made his humor by exaggerating the mannerisms of those around him or the circumstances of primitive life. We find him everywhere throughout the world, giving us the broad pattern of laughter and amusement, and uh, nearly all primitive people laughed early. Laughter belonged to primitive man, perhaps because of the world in which he lived being so filled with the unknown and with the possible causes of fear and terror. His autocorrectivism was immediate within himself. If he suffered, he also laughed. And because his intellectual equipment was not as complicated as ours, he was able to laugh and cry uh, in a common pattern of existence without sensing any conflict or inconsistency. He was amused by amusing things even in moments of tragedy. And in ancient times, the most solemn festivals and occasions had their humorous equivalents. In the early rise of the church, for example, there was a great deal of humor introduced into it. And uh, the various buffooneries, which were actually authorized or permitted by the church, would almost be regarded as bad taste today. But peoples living precariously, living with few advantages, found the importance of humor. We are going to come to this again because we also are coming again to live under a hazardous pattern, a pattern in which the importance of happiness, even in its fleeting moments, will make strong uh, inroads upon our psychology of life. The classical humor of the Greeks is perhaps some of the finest that we have largely because it was built upon an intimate knowledge of human nature. It showed the penetration of the philosophic mind with its ability to discern that which is inconsistent or incongruous in human behavior. Sometimes this humor was a little too biting for the type of taste that we have, 
but we must remember that it was limited largely to a group of individuals who had the ability to bear these uh, anecdotes uh, with skill and thoughtfulness and to return the compliments with other repartee equally sharp. It was a proof of one thing, namely that your very wise people, your very venerated people, nearly always have had a brilliant sense of humor. That it is an essential and inevitable expression of insight, of maturity of consciousness in problems involving emergency. Uh, we can, for instance, remember uh, little anecdotes belonging to this classical period, like the man who went up to Plato and said to him, Master, why is gold such a pale colored metal? And Plato replied instantly, because it is always afraid of the evil people who lay in wait for it. Just a passing thought, but a brilliant answer uh, uh, from a kind of mind that was capable of answering. Diogenes lived alone, and uh, his disciples said to him, Master, it isn't good for you to live alone. Supposing you would die, there would be no one to bury you. Diogenes said, the man who wants my house will bury me. <laughs> now, there was a, a simple directness of thinking there that uh, is an indication of how difficult it could be to move Diogenes to take part in any uh, useless argument over trivial things. On another occasion, Plato was discoursing with a disciple. The disciple asked Plato for a brief definition of man. Plato replied, a biped without feathers. Diogenes plucked a chicken and tossed it into the uh, school where Plato was teaching. It walked around without any feathers. And Diogenes said, behold, Plato's man. <laughs> Uh, these uh, were sharp things. Someone asked Pythagoras once, which was more important, the sun or the moon? And he said, obviously, the moon, because the sun shines in the daytime when it is light otherwise. But at night, the moon prevents us from being in the dark. The disciple, no doubt, went home and thought that one over very carefully and slowly. <laughs> the foolish answer for the foolish question. And so these uh, fragments of wit were, were uh, tossed about. The time when, of course, Alexander the Great sent Diogenes a basket of bones. Diogenes was called the dog of Athens, and Alexander decided to send him uh, the kind of food that was suitable for a dog to receive. Diogenes sent back the basket with a message, the food is suitable for a dog to receive, but it is not suitable for a king to send. 
After that, it is said the two men were bosom friends, <laughs> which indicates that they could take each other's humor, which is also a very important point in connection with humor. On occasion, someone gave Plato a new robe, a nice velvet cloak that hung on the ground behind him, and Plato, being by birth a patrician, probably enjoyed it. But Diogenes, seeing him walking around in it, thought that Plato was becoming a little too puffed up with worldly goods, and waiting for a mud puddle in the road, he jumped up and down on the tail of the coat and ground it into the mud. He, tur he turned and said, Thus I step on Plato's pride. Plato was always kind of a kindly, benign gentleman anyway, turned around with a big smile, looked at the damaged cloak and said, Yes, Diogenes, and how proud you are that you can do it. <laughs> All these episodes tell us that humor really had its ground in the classical world, in a world of people who had very definite understanding of values and who were able to pointedly uh, bring out the type of thinking which was consistent with their philosophical insight. All of them agree on one general point, whether it be the uh, humorists of Greece, the professional humorists like Aristophanes and Sophocles, or whether it be indirectly through the philosophers. Namely, that the human being looking at life, studying life, must analyze it, must be thoughtful about it, must learn everything that he can about it and from it. But he must never permit it, permit it to flood into him to become a terrible and dismal disaster. He can never fail to keep a certain separateness, an ability to be a participant without complete involvement, uh, to watch people love them in spite of what they do, or enjoy them regardless of their mistakes. That we cannot spend our entire time looking for and demanding perfection. If we take such an attitude, we will be miserable all our lives. We must take things a little as we find them and often recognize that while we are miserable over someone else, the person we are miserable over is not miserable at all and does not appreciate our consolation on that level of action. If we look out and see a world of people, a world under law, a world that is going and unfolding its own patterns, a world in which all things, regardless of our opinion, all things are working together for good, that the individual is growing, and that in this great plan there is time and place for growth. If we can keep sight of the great laws underlying life, we will not become dazed, bewildered, confused, and embittered. We can recognize and enjoy a certain amount of the daily drama of existence. 
Most things are not nearly as important as we make them. And if we begin to let down this making of importance out of unimportant circumstances, our nervous systems will relax, our emotions will be more placid, and our ability to be good friends, relatives, and associates will be increased. Whereas if we have not this attitude, we will simply become more and more difficult, and the tensions and stresses will bear in on us until we sicken and destroy our natural optimism. In modern times, humor has had a number of uses. We have found, for example, that there is no quicker way of ridiculing the pompous than through humor. The dictator who is not afraid of 20 uh, brigades of men uh, will not stand a little humor. Humor can destroy pompousness and sophistications and falsehood more quickly, perhaps, than any other instrument. Therefore, it is a powerful political and sociological force. The use of humor through the cartoon, through the various exaggerations that we see around us, help us to sense fallacies uh, which are uh, otherwise perhaps unnoticeable. Humor, therefore, does have this basic concept beneath it, that much of it is derived from the inconsistency of human action. Humor arises from the fact that the individual is unable to maintain policies in a consistent way over any great period of time. He starts in one direction, and he immediately loses perspective. Humor also arises from lack of continuity in human action. We discover, for example, that instead of continuing a course until it is finished, we break the pattern almost immediately. The American person is not, by nature, dedicated to continuity. Also in our action and concept, the tremendous conflict between what we do and what we say becomes the basis of humorous relationships. And of course, the entire end of humor seems to be uh, a means of reducing the pompous, to bring down that which appears to be superior or beyond us to the common level. We use it mostly, however, against individuals who have falsely attempted to prove superiority. We seldom, if ever, turn it bitingly against the world's truly great and noble people. We are more apt to turn it against the individual who is the dictator, who is the egotist, who is in some way so obnoxious that we feel the need to cut him down to more moderate proportions. And humor and cartoon and caricature attain these ends, and we use them constantly. Now, the average person living in his own world can gain something from the study of humor 
and its psychological reaction upon his own character. Why do we take ourselves too seriously? Why is it that most persons resent being the victim of a joke? Why is it that we feel that humorous things are beneath our dignity or have a tendency to detract from dignity? Most always the answer lies in egoism, in self-centeredness. The egotist does not like to be subjected to humorous ridicule. He feels that he is being attacked. He also is apt to recognize the fact that his own egotism is very thin and not very adequate. And he does not like to be shown that he is wrong or have his conduct or attitude exposed to ridicule. He is therefore apt to be offended, to resent, or even if he is on the level of humorous thinking himself, he is apt to become bitter, seeking to find humorous revenge for the humorous insult that has been done to him. After all this, then, the individual realizes, if he thinks a little, that when he is the victim of humor, he may have some weakness in himself exposed, some inconsistency, some unreasonable and foolish attitude. This is good. There is no reason why it shouldn't happen. But it cannot accomplish its real good unless the person who is the victim of the humor has a certain perceptive power of his own. The individual who cannot take the joke on himself will find that there are many other shocks in life that he cannot take either. And this hypersensitiveness will leave him open to a great deal of sorrow. He must, therefore, remember the old uh, time when Socrates attended the opening performance of the clouds of Aristophanes. Socrates attended because he was included in the cast. An actor was playing him. And this actor wore a very ridiculous mask and was hung in a basket near the ceiling of the theater in order that he might study the stars. It was all a ridiculing of Socrates, and a rather bitter ridiculing at that. But Socrates intent attended in person, applauded the show loudly, and when the actor came to take a bow who had impersonated him, Socrates himself got up so that the audience could see how much more homely he was than the actor's mask had made him. <laughs> He said that uh, actually, on another occasion, he said, if you wish to make fun of me and ridicule me, come and let me give you some good points that you can make. I know myself better than you do. And if you really want to insult me, I'll give you the knowledge and skill to do it thoroughly. Now, a man like that could not be controlled. And with the same spirit, he drank the hemlock rather than to compromise a principle of his life. 
the individual who can be laughed at without being perturbed as a strength that is almost incredible. If he can take himself in hand so that whatever a person says about him, his first thought is not, it is not so. The first thought is, could it be true? This leading to a self-investigation or examination. If every time the individual feels that someone is picking on him, he tries to discover whether he deserves it or not, rather than instantly picking back. If he takes these suggestions and recommendations, even though they come in ridicule, he may find out that some of his friends are trying in this way to get him a message that they do not feel he can receive in any other way. So it is always good to be able to listen without anger, without insult, on the same grounds that Socrates said that no man can insult me for telling me the truth. If what he says is true, I cannot be insulted. For if I am insulted, by the truth, then naturally I would be insulted by God, I would be insulted by everything that is of value. Therefore, the question is not whether I am insulted or not, the question is, is it true? If it is true, even in part, the problem is to correct the error and to be grateful for the person who points it out. This uh, takes a larger attitude, but a philosopher or a, an idealist, a mystic, is supposed to have that larger attitude. And if we could take uh, subtle corrections or even humorous corrections more easily, we would not be subject to so many of these terrible, tragic corrections which are forced upon us by our own conduct. Man lives in relationship to a large world of people. In this larger world, each individual has his own interests, his own purposes, and his own activities. Most of this larger world we never contact, except perhaps through the newspaper or the television or the radio. Therefore, we have very little intimate contact or association with its problems. We do, however, have a certain fringe contact with the world in general, through friends, through acquaintances, through persons who appear and disappear from our way of life. And each individual, to a measure, is locked in a struggle against the world. Those in business are struggling to survive against the pressures of economic processes and procedures. Everywhere it seems as though the individual is being sacrificed to mass pressures which he cannot control. It is therefore quite possible and reasonable that in the course of living that everyone does not favor our purposes. People appear who place us at a disadvantage. Someone gets the job we wanted. Uh, someone uh, finds an opportunity to succeed, which we have not 
noticed. All around us, other people are, to a degree, conditioning us, detracting from our privilege to do exactly as we please. We are faced with responsibilities and duties. Very often, from our own foolishness, we become involved in very complex situations. As this pattern becomes more and more pressureful and forceful, desperation arises within our own psychic life. We begin to fight back like a drowning man. And the more we struggle, the more certainly we shall drown because we are striving to nullify or neutralize or overcome the attitudes of masses so vast that we can never hope to overcome them. We can never hope to bring about the changes which we feel to be so essential to our happiness. Outside of a small group of persons, and if we try to change one individual, we suddenly recognize what a prodigious undertaking it is. And usually we cannot even succeed in that. We cannot change these other people. Therefore, we have to gain some relationship toward them that is not so stressful, not so burdensome not so constantly irritating and insulting to our attitudes. The sense of humor has this tendency to relieve these pressures. If we can look around us and find things to laugh with rather than to laugh at, if we can realize that everyone is a kind of combination of a would-be grown-up person and a factual small child, that so much of the pressure around us is false, that it has no real substance anywhere. It is there simply because we believe it. Gradually, we can come uh, perhaps a little to Mark Twain's way of thinking. He wrote for a world of children. He suddenly realized this world was not made up of a large number of bad people. It was made up of small children in the bodies of adults. These small children living their small lives, desperately serious about things that were not important and never could be. And like children in whose lives the greatest of tragedies can occur, humanity needs to have a certain fantasy, a certain relaxation, a release from these pressures, an opportunity to laugh and play, which are the natural instincts of man, instincts which have gotten lost in the terrible shuffle of economics. Therefore, that it is a great and good thing uh, to bring to life this realization that we live in a good world. And the constructive humorist can do that. He can show that people do funny things, but that most of the things that they do are not really bad. That these funny things are due to the peculiar blind spots that we all have. 
and that at the same time we are doing funny things also, doing strange and ludicrous things because of blind spots and because we do not possess the uh, maturity of thinking that we believe we have. Thus humor becomes a censorship on us. It shows us that we are not as wise or as brilliant or as mature as we believe, that we still share very largely in the common childishness of humanity, and that it is one of the privileges of childhood to laugh, to enjoy things, and not to permit the burdens of living to completely destroy our capacity for sincere fun, good kinds of fun. Fun is just as much a part of our psychological necessity as any other type of integration, and we need it as much as we need food in this process of living. We have to have it to keep the world moving in relationship to ourselves. Humor also is a wonderful self-analyzing factor. We cannot observe the peculiar actions of other people indefinitely without recognizing that we commit and perform similar actions. Now, I know persons who have enjoyed humor for years but have never seen anything humorous in themselves. It's too bad, but it happens. These people read jokes. Their friends could tell them that these jokes might have been written about these persons themselves. But to them, it is always about someone else. A humor does not enable the individual to see himself in the situation that arises. Only with a little philosophy and a little psychic penetration can we begin the gentle application of these lessons to our own natures. Yet the application is usually present. It is usually available to us. From a humor standpoint, let us consider a little bit of the facts of living as we know them. Persons today particularly live in rather restricted worlds of thinking. We are all becoming specialists, whether we know it or not. We are all closing doors and windows by which we should normally be connected to a larger world around us. In defense or in escape, we are becoming stratified into levels, into groups, into categories. And the person who <clears throat> has a sort of universal attitude on things is disappearing. We don't hear much about him anymore. So each of us has some level of thinking. If we're interested in philosophy, then that is our world. And we have very little time for any other world. If we're interested in science, that is our world. We're interested in business, it closes in more tightly around us every day. And in all these private worlds, uh, we have increasing intensity of procedure with reduced instruments of understanding. The more we tighten our world around us, 
Uh, the less true ventilation we have mentally, emotionally, psychologically. The more we specialize, the fewer resources we have to strengthen our own natures. Man, as a being, as a total creature, is not specialized. Man, as a psychic entity, is a universal being. If, therefore, he specializes his energies so that maybe only 10% of his faculties and powers are employed and the other 90% remain completely undeveloped, or nearly so, it is obvious that we are going to develop lopsided personalities, personalities in which a great part of our own native curiosity is lost, our observational faculties are restricted so that most of life is not noticed or seen. Our interpretive and understanding powers are restricted even more to some small world and a handful of people. Now this happens to other types of individuals in classes that we know about. For instance, the school teacher, whose constant association with children has a profound effect upon the total psychology of the individual. One teacher told me not long ago, she said, my world consists of a universe of children with an occasional adult appearing, usually in the form of the superintendent of schools. Uh, this is a world to the policeman. A great city like Los Angeles is just a hotbed of crime actual or potential. Every few minutes, someone needs help to be protected from somebody. And to a degree, we must forgive this uh, public servant if he comes to conclude that Los Angeles is largely composed of criminals. That is what he sees. That is what he works with. The judge works with the same problem. The physician works with the sick. And for him, the world is sick. He knows these experiences. Today, we work, most of us, in a little pattern of making a living. Therefore, our world is nothing but a world in which we're trying to make a living and someone else is trying to take it away from us. The moment we get it, nine other people want it. If we don't get it, no one wants us. Well, this gets to be a little oppressive. And we can see how this desperate struggle to make a living, to maintain ourselves, to pay our bills, to do the things that are next, this kind of existence creates a kind of melancholy. It reduces our natural resourcefulness, our optimism. Finally, happiness for us is merely to escape for a little while from this treadmill, from this squirrel cage of pressures. Freedom or happiness become releases into something that is not immediately necessary. For the rest of the time, we have gradually limited our perspective. Whereas we might normally get help or happiness or peace of mind from broad perspectives, we do not even dare to indulge these. They consume the time 
or part of it, that we feel must be dedicated to this relentless drive to survive. Obviously, under this type of situation, we lose our native optimism. We lose our native uh, bounce, our good-naturedness. And in the course of years, we find ourselves ground down into a sort of hopelessness. And even our humor becomes bitter. And uh, we no longer have a, a good, cheerful uh, attitude towards these different situations. The only solution here lies in the study of the occasional exception. Every once in a while we come across one of these indomitable persons whom nothing can completely squelch. These individuals move through similar situations as the ones we are in, but they do maintain values that we lose. Now, if one person in the entire history of life has been able to go through a difficult situation without being destroyed by it, this means that all persons can if they will. It means that it is possible to succeed where today too many of us totally fail. We fail not because of the complexity of the world around us, but because we permit this complexity to move in upon us. We take it on. We try to live it day and night. We try to maintain certain relationships with those around us which are not practical or possible. We are afraid to be ourselves. We are afraid to simply accept other people as themselves. And because of fears and pressures and complexes, we make life infinitely harder than it needs to be. Actually, the basis of friendship as a solution to problems of today is that the friend is the one person with whom we can be honest. If we cannot be honest with the friend, then we must either learn it and realize it and give it up, or else we must set to work and find ways in which we can gain this honesty with our friend. This constant fencing and hedging, this putting up all kinds of intangible or tangible barriers against plain honesty, these false values we regard as necessary because of the world in which we live, and because of them, we shorten our lives and die before our time. If we could just get away from this bitter seriousness and realize that we have to work, that things have to be done, but we do not need to carry them with this deadly intensity. We do not need to feel the weight of these things upon us constantly, morning, noon, and night. If we take a very clever humorist and let him dissect problems that we know, he will show us that these things we are doing are not nearly as serious as we think they are. They are really rather funny. But by the time we have an ulcer, Nothing is funny. 
And once we have accepted this tremendous responsibility for seriousness, nothing remains pleasant or happy. Yet all the things that happen to us are parts of patterns that we can accept in an entirely different way. Your classical attitude, your oriental attitude, is far more constructive. Namely, that the, the best energy that we can give to a project, the best dedication that we can bestow upon anything that is important to us, is relaxed attention to business. Without any overtones, without any fears, doubts, misgivings, to dedicate to the project at hand the full energy which we possess in a completely relaxed manner. Only in this way can we be truly uh, sincere in the administration of our affairs. The man who brings to the office with him all of his home worries, his fears, his doubts, his antagonisms against his executives, his complaints against his inferiors, and finally a monumental self-pity because of the situation he is in, this individual cannot work well. He cannot do the things that he is supposed to do and he cannot make intelligent decisions. Or if he can make them, they must be subject to long and strainful processes. So the individual has to come in with a certain amount of relaxation. He has to face every problem, personal and an impersonal, with a measure of detachment. And in the Western world, one of the ways to get this detachment is to recognize the peculiar, humorous undertone of things. It's sometimes a little difficult to explain it, but the cartoonist does so, and does so very adroitly. You take a cartoon such as four or five automobiles parked in a lot, Four of them are magnificent, large, shining cars. The last one is a small, old, rickety car. The caption underneath says, Which one belongs to the president? <laughs> and in your mind, you can immediately decide that it probably is the small, broken-down car because he is the only one there who does not need to put on airs. He's the only one who is not trying to get somewhere else. <laughs> His complete security is represented by the little car. Now this complete security of mind reminds us that these cartoons that appear in our papers every day are many of them almost Zen parables with a few words or no words at all. They cut through a division of human life. They are wonderful subjects for meditation. Not merely because we want to laugh, although we may do so, but because we see in them uh, an apperception 
of the stratification of human consciousness, we see how man operates, and we see the world through the eyes of a person who is trained in this kind of rather gentle but pointed criticism. If, therefore, we could take such humor to ourselves, we could very often transform this pressure that burdens us so heavily into a kind of pleasant, easy, uh, humorous relationship with things that might seem very serious. Now, humor does not necessarily mean flippancy. It does not mean that we do not consider things. Humor is often the deepest consideration of all. But it arises from this policy of reducing the human ego, pulling down this personal sense of grandeur, which makes it so hard for us to live with each other. I would say, therefore, that if any person who is under psychological stress is not carrying it well, they should begin to think in terms of lightening their concept of their world. Look around you and see what you can do to relieve yourself of a responsibility that you can never carry anyway. And that is the responsibility of worrying about the rest of mankind. Instead of worrying about mankind, recognize it for what it is. That it is a great aggregate of creatures, of beings, of every age level, mental, emotional, and physical. And that it is a collective group of growing creatures growing through relationships with each other. That even the greatest mistakes that man can make cannot actually interfere long with this process of growth. That most persons in their growth have the awkwardness of young creatures. For the young colt is awkward, the young cow is, all, is awkward. All creatures are awkward in their infancies. A man is mentally and emotionally awkward because he does not have the grace of his own internal maturity to, to integrate it. Furthermore, he is lacking in the ability to control his instincts, impulses, and appetites. They move in spite of him. They move to form fantastic social patterns in the world around him. These things are as they are. And uh, that the individual should wish they could be otherwise is natural. But this wish is also contrary to philosophic understanding of life. For an individual to wish people to be different from what they are is not a practical wish because people must be themselves and must outgrow their present state and learn from it if they are going to be better people. To wish they were merely better is a broad wish. Naturally, we would like to have all persons good, 
happy, contented, and wise. But the end we seek is slow of attainment, and we must grow to this condition through years and lives of development and self-expression. In the meantime, however, our present growth is due, or at least is greatly helped, if we are able to understand each other without false values, without false pressures, without intensities that destroy basic comradeships of relations. So everywhere things get too heavy, it is important to lighten them, to give them the grace of a chuckle or a smile, which will go much further than long and serious ponderings. It is difficult for us to ponder some things well because we will never come up with the answers anyway. There are problems we discuss every day which will not be solved for another hundred thousand years. So all we can possibly come up with is another opinion. And to lock ourselves in opinions is again to create a seriousness which is not justified by our essential knowledge. So humor can help with this. It can show us the futility of trying to be more than we are. It reminds me of this very famous statement that I was greatly influenced by many years ago by a southern cook who probably had the philosophy of life better integrated than most people will ever know. When any condition arose of great complexity or of great involvement, this cook would always come out with this statement. Child, there ain't no use you're trying to be what you isn't because you is what you am. <laughs> now beyond this logic, which is irrefutable, there is no place to go. Here a whole world of shams falls away. If people would only realize that they is what they am, and would be contented to work from that, so much could be accomplished. But it is difficult for people to build securely upon what they think they are because nearly always we exaggerate our abilities and we assume that we have more knowledge, more understanding, and more talent than we possess. So we go on trying to build these things too rapidly or on a level above that of our true attainment. This is a mistake and leads uh, to great uh, misfortune. True self-analysis begins with a simple study of our values. And to get to this, we have to dig underneath all of the defenses we have made and the efforts we have attempted to impose by which we seem to be better than we are. We've got to get down to facts. To get down to facts is not as grievous or tragic or depressing a thing as we think. I know a few people who have done it, people who thought they were pretty important and were very unhappy when other people didn't agree with them. They finally dug into themselves. They got down to the bottom of the whole thing, and when they got there, they just let out one great big chuckle. 
they realized how they'd been fooling themselves, how they themselves had been the ridiculous ones, and that actually the values underneath were so simple and so real that on these foundations almost anything that is good could be built. But on the false estimation of self, nothing very fortunate can be constructed because there's nothing under it. So when we get down underneath all the pretenses, we're just folks. We're folks that enjoy one thing, we do not enjoy something else. Uh, we like and we dislike, we hope and we fear. But with it all, we have a wonderful tenacity to life and a, an instinct to grow, to become better people. And we also are naturally friendly and gregarious by instincts. We like to be friendly. Simple people can be friendly. When we are not defensive and we are not attacking anyone else, we can be truly friendly. And we can grow. And we can be receptive to the help that other people can give us. In our way of life, we are so often... Uh, egotistically locked so that we cannot accept help. Taking the attitude that we alone are right, we try to give our assistance to others, whether they want it or not. And we're so busy trying to help others, quite sincerely, that we are unable to receive anything from anyone else. We frustrate everyone who might like to do a kindly act to us. And we also lock ourselves against the great common experiences of life, experiences which should be the real source of our understanding. But if we can relax and not take ourselves too seriously, we can come around to Emerson's position in which he points out that there is not a person in the whole world from which we cannot learn something. The only reason we cannot learn under normal conditions, is because we are locked against learning or because we are unwilling to accept the other person as possessing anything worth knowing. But get down to facts. And I've watched this many times. Get rid of these shams and pretenses and we live in a world in which there is an incessant circulation of essential ideas. There are many more ideas than we realize. There is much more available knowledge than we sense. But when we get away from sham and pretension, we open a new world of learning, a world of sharing honestly and factually, without prejudice and without opinion. Prejudice, again, is an attitude which arises from egotism, from self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is self-importance. And anyone who feels self-importance important cannot take a joke on himself. So one of the proofs of a good humorist is one who can take the joke on himself. Who is perfectly able to realize that there's so much truth in the other person's caricaturing of him that he must accept and must hope that he is able uh, to improve his nature or correct the faults 
of others, that others see in him. Someone once said to Plato that a certain man was making satirical remarks about him. And what should the disciples do about it? And Plato said, do nothing except pray that I may so live that no one will believe these remarks. That is the only answer. There is no sense in suing the man or fighting with him because it's possible, as Plato points out on another occasion, that the man is true, that Plato had these faults, but that his disciples, because they so admired him, did not notice the faults. So he points out that people may have faults and serious faults, and foolish people may discover the faults in the wise. But whenever these faults are pointed out, the true answer is to consider them, analyze them, see if there is truth in them, and then correct any faults in ourselves that we can discover, which would justify this criticism by others. Instead of being angry, seek for the facts, and if we find them, act accordingly. Today we observe a considerable change in humor. Down through the long, dark, medieval period of European history, humor developed an extraordinary breadth. A great deal of humor, particularly theatrical humor, uh, was as late as the Elizabethan theater, consistently vulgar. And the uh, stage became notorious uh, for the broadness with which it attacked the foibles of the time. Humor in town through this period, such as certain of the cynical writing of Petrarch and Dante, uh, was also politically barbed. It was aimed at existing corruptions, and it exposed leaders and tyrants to extraordinary uh, condemnation through humor. Gradually, however, this breadth of humor changed with the rise of education. And education has resulted in what we would term today intellectual humor. Humor is today directed toward a level of thinking and is uh, tied more and more with the essential inconsistencies of the patterns of our living. In the last 50 years, man as a psychological entity has gradually come to realize that his little train of events is off the track. Something has gone essentially wrong in this thing which we call civilization. One of the things that seems to be wrong is that we have deified this way of life. We have affirmed that because it is our way of life, it has to be great and it has to be good. Our humorist knows that this isn't so, because sitting quietly beside the road and watching it go, go by, relaxing to life, he sees that this pattern is in many ways ridiculous. By ridiculous, meaning inconsistent or full of contradictions and discords which gravitate against its solemnity and its significance. 
All through this period of the last half century, man has also uh, been pressing forward uh, to integrate or solidify uh, his own way of life. He has been trying to force it upon himself and upon others. He has created what we might term a mass or group attitude, which is being pressed forward at the expense of the individual in almost every uh, department of living. This integration into an ever smaller pattern, a pattern which is not big enough for the human being, a pattern which locks him and limits him, has become the basis of a great human humoristic rebellion against authority. Today we rebel humorously against nearly every kind of authority. While an individual is out of office, we pull for him. The moment he is in office, we proceed to pull him down. We resent primarily the concept of authority. Because authority to us is something which prevents us from doing what we want to do. And to each person, his own desires form a sacred heritage, which he is resolved to cater to if possible. Our entire humor, then, has become this humor of tearing down the great and lifting up the humble, which, according to Aesop the fabulist, was the particular work of the gods. Therefore, if there is something that appears to be underprivileged, we want to raise it up, pull it up, lift it up. This is part of the great psychology of the proletariat, of whom it is said that the great problem now is not to find work for the proletariat, but to find enough space for them to park their cars. That seems to be the, the real serious issue at the moment. But this proletariat must be raised up. Then there is this awful boogie at the top, the great man, the great class, the ruling group. This must be pulled down. So our political humor, and in fact our general humor, is constantly a ridiculing of so-called superiority and a benediction upon that which has apparently never had a chance. This conflict comes in also into our thinking, where we subject professions to ridicule and even to a measure trades. But always our tendency is to make the stuffed shirt seem ridiculous, to make everything that is uh, over us seem to a strange way to appear infantile or unable or inadequate in some sense of the word. We attack corporations. We attack various motions. And also we will take some simple things that are, are rather apparent to us and which we come, become humorous to our thinking and we exaggerate. One of the problems, for instance, is the ridiculousness of the modern automobile. This has become quite a source of humor. We know inside of ourselves that these endless changes are largely made in order to obsolete the older models and cause us to buy a new car every year. 
But in the making of these changes, some good things have been done. Other foolish things have been done. And uh, the individual is very sharp in his humor on this particular uh, uh, problem. Like the cartoon of the man buying an automobile. And the man has insisted he wants it without extras. And the salesman says to him, well, after all, my dear man, you will want the wheels. <laughs> As a play on this uh, constant loading of cars. Or the man in the midget car who had driven up on the back of a larger car between two exaggerated fins because he thought he was on the San Francisco Bay Bridge. <laughs> These kind of things represent our modern laughing at stupidity, which we recognize and which we accept good-naturedly. This good-natured ridicule, however, filtering through industry, will probably ultimately improve the car. We will finally have a more possible car as a result of it. But we know these things are foolish, and we poke fun at them. This we understand and know. But when the time comes for us to buy one of these cars, when the time comes for us to consider whether we should not be keeping up with the neighbors, and if we can find a car with a fin six inches taller than any other that has ever been seen before, what is our own personal attitude going to be? Are we going to be really affected by this humor? Or does this strange, dull pressure of our own egoism move in and cause us to join a herd of foolish people that we know to be foolish simply because we want to excel them? To study this problem back and forth is to estimate a great deal of our own nature, to find out what we stand for and whether we are brave enough essentially courageous in our own nature, to do these things which we regard as reasonable, regardless of how other people may feel about them. To a large measure, the conformist is a coward. He is afraid to be himself. He is afraid he in turn will be exposed to ridicule. So ridicule becomes a weapon against all weakness and against all fear. We must outgrow these emotions if we are to finally attain maturity of personal thinking. So our humor today ex uh, extroverts our reaction to our foibles. It gradually gains tremendous vital force, however, in our political structure and has become the basis of both strength and weakness. There is no doubt in the world that American humor is not understood well in other nations. There are some examples where it is, but for the most part, other countries resent the idea of the American people simply ridiculing everything. Ridiculing becomes a profession. The humorist, like the banker, falls into a category. He is expected to have certain attitudes. His humor is no longer always genuine by any sense or by any understanding of the word. So it is dangerous sometimes for our humor to indicate 
disrespect for value, if we permit it to be disrespectful of things that are really important, then we are endangering things that are real. If, however, we allow ourselves to build up too many prejudices and too much veneration for things that are not important, we go into the opposite extreme. And somewhere between these two extremes lie the facts. And each person, I firmly believe that 99% of human beings from any strata of society which has had reasonable opportunity, anything that is not totally illiterate and totally underprivileged, the majority of human beings, if they will relax, if they will let down artificial patterns which are not real or not part of themselves, that the average human being has underneath his personality an abundant supply of common sense. Now, the purpose of humor, really, is some way to reach and release this potential common sense. It is not only the sense we have in common, but it is this sense of common value, value that is real, value in comparison to which other things are ridiculous. So actually, that which is not truthful is ridiculous to the degree that it is not truthful. And the dedication to that which is not so creates a ridiculous life. And by this standard, there are a great many ridiculous lives, addicted to things which have no value. But this common sense underneath things tells us how to live, what we can afford to spend, how much debt we can safely carry, what our basic attitude should be toward others, what our proper relationship should be with ourselves. These things are innate. We know them. But we have blocked them with pride, egotism, and a certain amount of worldly success which has induced us to forget our common humanity. One of the simplest ways of blasting through all of this uh, accumulation of false value is constructive humor. It reveals the facts to us. It also gives us the internal relaxation and release of a good laugh. It also may induce us finally to laugh at ourselves, to realize how we have burdened our lives and the lives of those around us with this deadly boredom which we call taking ourselves seriously. Out of the common sense at the root of things, our great wisdom will come. Philosophy is nothing but discipline, common sense. Religion is nothing but dedicated, common regard for value and for the life and principle of the world in which we live. Religion and philosophy must have their roots in these basic values. And something must be done to clear away false things before the structure of a true building can be erected. In many instances, humor has striven and succeeded admirably in helping to clear away the rubbish, the rubbish of decadent sophistication. It cuts through to the facts in things 
and shows us how ridiculous it is to live away from value, away from integrity. It also points out how important it is to learn so that we can live consistency, consistently and not make ourselves ridiculous in our conduct with others. So altogether, humor lets us down. It gives us perspective. It releases us from tensions. It helps us to be more kindly, and it helps us to agree, agree with our adversary more quickly, which is a good biblical injunction. Most of all, however, it makes life more pleasant. There is more sunshine in things. We are not forced to constantly defend something. We can let down, be ourselves, and enjoy the values that we know. Free from false pressures, we can also begin to grow better, think more clearly, uh, unfold our careers more constructively. We can share in the universality of knowledge we can open ourselves to the observation of the workings of laws around us. We'll get rid of this lockness with which our over-seriousness divides us from our fellow man. So we recommend strongly that everyone develop and mature a pleasant sense of humor and that we occasionally observe some little humorous incidents or records around us in the paper, the press, and so forth, and that we take these little humorous episodes and where they seem to be very pertinent, think about them, because there may be just as much truth in them as there is in Scripture. And through understanding these little humorous anecdotes, we shall come finally to have a much closer, warmer relationship with people, a relationship built upon laughing together over the common weaknesses and faults that we all share. In this way, we are free from many limitations of energy and have much more time at our disposal with which to do good things and do them happily and well. Time's up. This is the awakening of intuitive understanding according to a Japanese philosophic discipline. If you enjoy Voodoo Nut Podcast or find this information interesting, please leave a like, share, and subscribe. Click the notification bell for more on my YouTube channel. Thank you for listening.